0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to The Vanished ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today.
1: I got dragged into the county sheriff's office. They brought this, this profile thing in, and they sort of questioned me, and they as much as accused me.
2: My impression is that uh, Billy was, but I can't prove it. I don't really know for sure, but he was, I think, involved with Ahern's union problems. And the guy's name was Scotto, Anthony Scotto. He went to prison. But Billy could have been singled out as part of uh, a distant object, you know, maybe... uh, they tried to play ball that way. But Billy disappeared. Not a trace, not a clue.
0: Bill Jamison disappeared in the early morning hours of March 27, 1981. He went missing after a night out at a bar and stopping for a quick bite to eat at a diner. When Bill left the diner, it was a clear night in the mid to low 40s. But something happened to Bill after he left that diner. The waitress who served Bill didn't notice anything was wrong. He ordered the same thing that he always got during his late night stops. Bill finished his meal, walked out into the night, and disappeared forever. Yesterday, we told you what is known about Bill's disappearance and what efforts were put forth early on to find Bill. Bill's family didn't feel like they were getting enough help from law enforcement. So they started their own search, sometimes using unconventional methods like psychics. They met with law enforcement, begging them to do more. Over the years, family members sent letters to just about anyone they thought might listen or have resources that could aid in their search efforts. 41 years later, Bill's disappearance remains just as much of a mystery as it was in 1981. Today, we're going to take a look at some things that were happening at Bill's work during the lead up to his disappearance, because there was a lot going on and his family has always wondered if that could have something to do with what happened to Bill. I'm Marissa, and from Wondery, this is episode 345 of The Vanished, part two of Bill Jamison's story. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases, to celebrity memoirs, mysteries, and thrillers, and more. And my favorite part is that members can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. The Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere, while traveling, working out, doing chores, you decide. I carve out a little bit of time each evening to listen while I'm cooking, and right now I'm listening to Lay Them to Rest by Laura Norton. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash MIA or text MIA to 500-500. That's audible.com slash MIA or text MIA to 500-500. Many of the people that we spoke to described Bill Jamison as a loner. He didn't have much going on in his personal life, though he did stay in frequent contact with family. The deeper we looked into this it seemed like there was more going on at Bill's work than in his personal life, things that were adding to Bill's stress levels, which were already at an all-time high after the passing of his father in January of 1981. At the very end of Part 1, you heard Bill's brother Jack say this.
2: You know, I talked to Billy the day before he disappeared. There was a sense of aggravation there at the company. There was some, uh, some things going on. There was somebody going to visit him. I can't remember his name either. I think he had met him in the past, but Billy wasn't uh, looking forward or uh, was pissed off that this guy was coming, and it it aggravated him. But he he had things to do at his own house down the shore before my mother got back from her trip, and uh, he wasn't necessarily going to make it up to my house I'd previously planned for a duck decoy uh, exposition up that way, and so he was he was agitated uh, he, he didn't say he was, but you know just the way he was, he's normally pretty easy going at least with me, and I could sense some frustration
0: so what kind of pressure was Bill under at work? Who was coming to see him that he was stressed out about? We're going to dig into the situations at Bill's work. There were many things going on around this time. And this part of the story can get a bit complicated. When Bill disappeared in March of 1981, he was working at the Haug die casting company in Kenilworth, New Jersey. This was within walking distance of Bill's apartment. The company was owned by Jack Sullivan. I wanted to note here that there are three different Jacks in this story. There's Bill's brother, Jack Jamison, Bill's boss, Jack Sullivan, and another Jack who was a coworker. We will discuss him later in this episode. I'm going to use their first and last names to help you keep track of this story. The Jamison family is related to the Sullivan family through marriage. Bill's sister, Katie, is married to Jack Sullivan's son, James. We spoke to James, and he gave us some background information on the Sullivan's businesses and how Bill came to work there.
3: Starting in 1970, my dad owned two businesses. One's a manufacturing company. The other's a sales company. I had an older brother that went to work for the sales company and then switched over to the manufacturing company and moved up to North Jersey. That's my brother, Steve. He did that in about 1972. I graduated from college in 1973 and went to work for my dad in the sales agency piece of the business. These two businesses were quite separate. The manufacturing company had its own customers and its own location up in Kenilworth, New Jersey. And I live down here in the Philadelphia suburbs. I went to work for the sales agency. And basically, since I was the only guy there, within a few years, I was able to buy the business from my dad. So my dad's two businesses took a fork in the road when I got involved in the sales business. And In 77, bought it from him, and the manufacturing company went its own way. That's the Haug Die Casting up in Kenilworth, New Jersey. They were looking for a plant manager, and Bill Jamison was looking for a job, and one thing led to another, and Bill went to work for the manufacturing company that my dad owned, that my brother was working in, and they also had an accounting guy. By the name of Gene McCormick.
0: So it was James's brother, Steve Sullivan, Bill, and another man named Gene who were mostly running the company alongside Jack Sullivan. Then Jack Sullivan left to go work for the Jimmy Carter administration and left them to run the business in his absence.
3: My dad went off to work for Jimmy Carter in Washington, and the three of them were running the manufacturing company. I was not involved in the manufacturing business at all. I talk to my dad all the time. Billy probably went to work for them a year or more before my father went to work for Jimmy Carter, which was January of 76. So Billy must've started with the manufacturing company in 74 or 75. So my dad goes off to Washington, leaving these three guys to run the business. And the way the business was organized, the way the management was organized, Billy was kind of responsible for being the plant manager. My brother, Steve, was responsible for sales and engineering. And Gene McCormick handled the accounting function. And then my dad goes off to Washington, leaving these three guys to manage the business. And I believe he granted them each 10 percent of the stock of the company, more or less, to assure their loyalty and to ensure them that they were, they were going to be responsible for running this business.
0: So what is it about this situation that could have led to some trouble for Bill? James told us what he knows.
3: There were two opportunities for Billy to run afoul of union-slash- mob activity. A union, I think it was the UAW, organized Haug die casting in the late 70s. If I were to pick a number, I would say 1978, 79, something like that. They came in and they got a union vote and the workers at Haug voted to go union with, I think it was the UAW, which of course was not something that the management group was happy with. But that, I don't know whether there was, there was enough friction there to speculate very much.
0: James told us that there's a whole other side of this, involving a family member of his who was the president of another business. And that business was tied in with the mob.
3: There's a different element. My father's cousin, Walter O'Hearn, the McGrath Corporation, my father's name was John McGrath Sullivan, okay? And the McGrath is there because his mother was a McGrath. The McGraths had a large stevedoring corporation headquartered in New York. It started in the early teens, maybe the early 20s. Stevedoring are the guys that unload. The ships at the docks. So the McGrath Corporation became very successful during World War II with all of the shipping that was going on surrounding the war. And they came out of World War II as the largest stevedoring company, possibly in the country, but certainly on the East Coast. So they, it was a, a significant company. Uh, run by the five McGrath brothers, they called them the uncles. And when you're operating on the docks, it's a heavily unionized and heavily mob infiltrated work environment on the docks in New York. As president of McGrath services, my father's cousin, Walter O'Hearn, was approached by the FBI who explained to him that they had been watching his lieutenants pay off the New York mob. I believe the guy's name was Anthony Scotto, who was the head of one of the mob families in New York. And the FBI, having basically surveilled the payments of monies from McGrath's services to the mob, Union representatives asked him to go to have his vice president go undercover and wear a wire and provide information uh, against Anthony Scotto. And during the time that his lieutenant was, you know, wearing a wire secretly against this mob uh, activity, Walter O'Hearn and his family were kind of the next best thing to in witness protection. They were basically in hiding.
0: You are probably wondering what this all has to do with Bill. Well, it was during this time period when the company that Bill worked for was considering becoming unionized. And Bill sought out advice from Walter O'Hearn on how to deal with the whole union situation.
3: Oddly enough, during somewhere in this time, and I think in in relationship to the Union organizing that was going on at Bill Jamison's Haug die casting. I think Bill was seeking advice from Walter about how to handle the union because the McGrath Services Corporation was dealing with unions all the time. And I have a vague recollection that, that Walter O'Hearn had somebody in his employ that was a union expert, that Bill was sort of uh, visiting to get some some guidance and some information on how to handle uh, the union at the manufacturing company. I don't think the two unions are connected in any way. I don't really know. I do think that Bill was talking to Waldo O'Hearn and Waldo O'Hearn's lieutenant, who, who was their expert on union stuff, Bill had visited and talked to him You know, I don't know whether it was once or four times, but had uh, been seeking guidance from them. So after Bill disappears, one of the questions that naturally comes to the fore is, was there something about this relationship that Walter O'Hearn had with his mob slash union confrontations that fell on Billy in the wrong way? I don't think we have any information to that effect, but it's just something that makes you scratch your head.
0: Here is some background information on the case against Anthony Scotto that we found from court records. He was the president of the International Longshoremen's Association, Local 1814, which was located in Brooklyn. He was also the vice president for legislative affairs for the International Longshoremen's Association nationally. From 1975 to 1979, Scotto received labor payoffs from six waterfront businesses. From Walter O'Hearn's business alone, Scotto was paid $15,000 quarterly, plus another $5,000 at Christmas, which added up to $65,000 annually. Today, that would be more than $347,000 each year. And that was from just one of the businesses that he was receiving payments from. In return, Scotto was assisting in reducing fraudulent and exaggerated workers' compensation claims filed by union members. Scotto was convicted in 1980 and sentenced to five years in prison, and was ordered to pay a $75,000 fine. A year later, Bill Jamison disappeared. Could there be a connection? Our skin has a huge effect on our confidence. If you have acne or noticing signs of aging, it can be frustrating to waste time and money on products that aren't formulated for you. That's why I recommend Curology. Curology makes personalized prescription skincare products. Curology's personalized prescriptions are formulated to treat your individual skin needs. They use a combination of three clinically researched ingredients, making it more effective than non-prescription cleansers and moisturizers alone. I tried it out myself, and it's easy, and I can't wait to get my first box. Just fill out a quiz about your skin, share photos, and a provider will prescribe a personalized formula based on your skin's unique needs. For a limited time, you can get your first Curology skincare box for just $5. When you go to Curology.com slash vanished, go to Curology.com slash vanished for this free offer. That's Curology, C-U-R-O-L-O-G-Y ycom slash vanished. Trial is 30 days, applies to your first box, subject to consultation, new subscribers only. Let me guess, your medicine cabinet is crammed with stuff that doesn't work. You still aren't sleeping. You still hurt and you're stressed out. That's how it was for me. So I cleared out my cabinet, and I'm excited to reset my health with CBD from CB Distillery. CB Distillery's targeted formulations are made from the highest quality clean ingredients. No fluff, no fillers, just pure, effective CBD solutions designed to help support your health. In two non-clinical surveys, 81% of customers experienced more calm. 80% said CBD helped with pain after physical activity and an impressive 90% said they slept better with CBD. If you struggle with a health concern and haven't found relief, make the change to CB Distillery. And with over 2 million customers and a solid 100% money-back guarantee, CB Distillery is the source to trust. I have a 20% discount to get you started. Visit cbdistillery.com and use code VANISHED for 20% off. That's cbdistillery.com code VANISHED. cbdistillery.com While we were speaking with members of the Jamison family, we asked them what they knew or had heard about the possible mob connection. This is what Bill's brother Jack told us.
2: Billy, more or less, was the negotiator, and they were trying to bring the union in there. I think Billy's job was to resist it as much as they could. From what I'm led to believe, he was... uh, you know treated some of the union members i don't want to say harsh but you know he he was a tough boss uh we may not have uh thought it was as much a issue at the immediate time maybe maybe even within the several months even when the cops were trying to you know question and say well is there anything there any anybody trying to get into the company the mob or the union you know and We simply said they were trying to organize a union, but after all this time, is there a direct connection? Billy supposedly wore a wire to some meeting. Jack Sullivan, the owner of the company Billy worked for, uh, who at the time Billy disappeared, uh, was just getting out of his uh, duties with the Carter administration. He was uh, the head of the railroad administration or something. But anyway, my impression is that uh, Billy was, but I can't prove it. I don't really know for sure, but he was, I think, involved with Ahern's union problems. And the guy's name was Scotto, Anthony Scotto, and there was he went to prison uh, as far as who Ahern, Ahern is. And uh, the the unions were, he was making payoffs to the union. And then there, were, there was... Uh, Ahern may have went to the feds, and they you know, were trying to help him not lose as much money to the stevedores and paying off these rackets to get his uh, ships unloaded and stuff like that. And he may have called upon Billy, may have, I say. I heard something to that effect, that uh, Billy was going to wear a wire. And the reason they'd go to Billy is because he doesn't work for them directly, but he's an ex-army officer. He was decorated. He's uh, probably considered very intelligent, yet at the same time fearless and principled. So they may have, through Ahern and whoever were handling him by the FBI or who, who have you right there, trying to get, trying to get a, a little bit of the mob action curtailed. Billy could have, could have uh, been identified that way by the mob as a possible target. I have no idea. Billy could have been singled out as part of a distant object, you know, and maybe they tried to play ball that way. But Billy disappeared, not a
4: trace, not a clue.
0: Bill's sister Katie gave us her perspective on all of this.
4: Walter O'Hearn, he no sooner takes that job as president that he's informed by the FBI that they want him to wear a wire to Put away um, a guy by the name of Scotto, and his family was in protective custody for a while, and he wore a wire and put this big mafia boss in New York away. I didn't feel like this initially, but as the years have gone by, I have felt that with Billy going up to Walter's office in New York to negotiate the contract that they wanted to craft for the the union workers, that maybe with the cops, their initial attitude, maybe they knew it was a, the way it happened. I mean, he's out with some drinking buddy. They go to, a, he goes to a, um, a diner uh, after drinking, has breakfast, gets in the car and disappears. Maybe they knew and their attitude was that this is a classic mob hit, if anything. I don't know. Could that be what happened and why the cops took the attitude they did? That they knew right away that this was a mob hit and we were never going to find out what happened to this guy. Now why this die casting company isn't a big fish. It's one of many little companies in North Jersey. I mean, I don't I don't know. I and the only connection that makes me think that now when I look back and look at and I try to look for a reason why the police would have the attitude they had toward me Because maybe they knew it was a mob hit and they were trying to save me the aggravation of of what I was going through. And the connection would be that they thought they could effectively, they couldn't get to Walter's family, so they got to somebody that they knew was a downline person. It was a sensitive issue at the time when Billy disappeared. I mean, I think my father-in-law and Walter probably thought, could this be, and Maybe they thought, eh, Billy's too distant from the immediate family. I don't know.
0: While this mob angle is certainly interesting, and not something that has ever been ruled out, there are other things that were going on at Bill's work, too. There was a line worker who had accused Bill of negligent behavior that led to him being poisoned at work. This man was bitter about the situation and disliked Bill. This employee filed a lawsuit against the company, which was later dropped. Private investigators went to this man's home, and they were met by his wife, who was described as aggressive. She yelled out that her husband didn't kill him. We can only assume she was speaking about Bill. When the man was interviewed by a private investigator, he said that he didn't like Bill, but also that he didn't kill him. We found a note in the police records indicating that this man was interviewed in 1990. And during that interview, he offered to take a polygraph or even truth serum to prove his innocence. Jack told us what he knew about this incident.
2: You know, Fletcher, I think, was a veteran and Billy tried to help him, but the guy got sick or something and ended up in the hospital and the the guy come to blame Billy. If Billy didn't uh, get him in his unemployment or benefits compensation, uh, there might have been something there. I'm not sure. I, I can't remember for sure. But Fletcher... Yeah, he was one of those guys, and it, it wasn't me who developed any of that. Uh, we had other investigators.
0: There was also another incident that Jack was aware of, when another employee got injured on the job, and Bill's reaction to the event shocked some of his coworkers.
2: There was one guy, and this is all speculation, it's not proof, one guy working on a machine, and he got his hand caught in the machine and lost a finger. Billy got the guy to the hospital, and when he came back, Billy's the one who cleaned up the machine, and he picked up his finger and walked out the back door of the facility and threw the finger, which was totally crushed. There's a pond back there. He threw it into the pond. That supposedly could have ruffled some feathers of some of the workers who may have witnessed that. So no names. I don't know who, who the worker was, you know. But he, was, he wasn't well-liked by the rank and file, because he was a, a kind of a, a tough boss. He ran the show there. Billy tried to make that a profitable business for Jack Sullivan to come home to a nice shop.
0: There are notes about another former employee who was allegedly fired after taking a two-hour-long lunch break. When they sent this man his W-2 in the mail... He called to complain that he had received the W-2 and that it was in tiny shreds. Bill's secretary said that she had put it in the envelope in one piece. She also said that the man called on three separate occasions, cursing and screaming in a way that she described as off the wall. Bill's secretary also said this man made a threat directed at Bill, saying, I'll get that fat son of a bitch. Jack Sullivan, the owner of the company that Bill worked for, was interviewed by police in 1984 and he hinted at some other issues with the business. This is what the report says. After Jimmy Carter's victory, he was given the post of the director of the railroad and kept communication with the company, primarily through his son, Steve Sullivan, and Jean McCormick. During the course of the time that he was away from the company, they had an employee named Chris Sealski, and Mr. Sullivan had approved Sielski's tuition payment to complete his college education. During the next few years, McCormick, Jamison, and Sealski had been running the company, and Sielski and McCormick became very close. In turn, Sealski began making a large amount of money, compared to the other employees who had been there longer. There was a lot of disharmony between Sielski and another employee, who had been there for 30 years. This led the employee to quit the company with bitter feelings. Jamison and Sielski had allegedly had a good rapport with each other, Mr. Sullivan stated that he returned from Washington, D.C. and took complete control of the company in April of 1982 and fired McCormick. Sielski allegedly took this very badly due to him and McCormick having control over the company, more or less. Sielski wrote a letter to Sullivan in 1982 and never came back to work. Mr. Sullivan found all of the money in the petty cash drawer missing. Mr. Sullivan went on to say that he had purchased another company in Maryland and sent Sealski to pick up a piece of machinery. And when he went to the Maryland company a short time later, he found that everything had been cleaned out. Mr. Sullivan stated that he later laid everyone off when he returned to the company, after finding out the company was losing money, a complete reversal of when he was actively running the business. Mr. Sullivan believed that Sielski, along with McCormick and possibly Jamison, were milking the company when Mr. Sullivan was in D.C., That is the end of the report about this interview, but the main takeaway is that Jack Sullivan believed that it was possible that the people he left in charge of the company while he was gone may have been skimming from the company. Katie read this interview that her father-in-law had with the police, and she has some issues with what was said. To her knowledge, it was Steve Sullivan, Gene McCormick, and her brother Bill who were essentially running the business. But in this interview, Mr. Sullivan left his son almost completely out of the narrative. Was Jack Sullivan trying to shield his own son by leaving him out of the story? Here's Katie again.
4: When I read the interview that my father-in-law had with the police, my brother Billy worked with G McCormick and Steve Sullivan, and the three of them were managing the company. Those three guys thought that they were going to buy Jack out and run the company. Well, that didn't happen. Jack, Jack came back from Washington And fully expected to be running his own company. Well, in the interview that Jack gave to the police, he never mentioned Steve as being somebody who's managing the company. He talks about Gene McCormick and my brother, Billy, and this guy, Chris It was very strange to both my husband and myself when we read that report, thinking about, well, why wouldn't Jack mention Steve? So that gets me back to I wonder if the union wasn't sending a message to Walter O'Hearn, who was Jack's cousin, that they can get to him if they want. And that's how Billy's disappearance is that because Jack not mentioning Steve in that tells me or makes me think that maybe Jack was trying to protect Steve. Now, Jack is deceased.
0: The former employee that Jack Sullivan had told the police about, Chris Sielski, he was interviewed by the police as well. This is what the report says. Mr. Sielski related the following about William Jamison. Bill began to drink heavily after the death of his father, and at times came into work either late or with a bad hangover, or the smell of alcohol still on his breath. Prior to his father's death, he only drank Coca-Cola to his knowledge. And that is what Bill related to him. He had a very moody attitude at times, and he would not use much diplomacy when dealing with trivial matters. He told of one time when Jamison began to yell at some female employees because they weren't doing something the way he wanted it done. He said that he never showed anything to him that would cause you to believe that something was bothering him until his father passed away. He understood that Jamison and his father had apparently had an agreement about his drinking, and after he died, he went back to it. After Jamison's father died, he became depressed and flew off the handle a lot of times, but never appeared self-destructive to Sealski. Jamison spoke about the house he bought at the Jersey Shore and about getting a loan through the VA. He always talked about his nephews and nieces, and it appears to Sealski, by the way Jamison talked about them, that he would miss them very much if he disappeared on his own free will and would at least want to see them occasionally. Jamison kept to himself and didn't appear to have any close friends. He heard that Jamison would drink too much and get into arguments in bars regularly over little things with people that he didn't even know, football games, etc. At the end of the report, the investigator noted that Sealski appeared to be honest with his answers and statements, and would make himself available for future inquiries. Bill's family believes that it was Steve Sullivan, Gene McCormick, and Bill Jamison who were running the company while Jack Sullivan was off working for the Carter administration. It's unclear why Jack Sullivan left his son Steve out of the narrative when he spoke to the police. Perhaps he was afraid he might get his son in trouble. From what we can gather from interviews and records, there was apparently no growth in the business while Jack Sullivan was gone, and he was unhappy about this. There was some uncertainty about what might happen when he came back to town. Jimmy Carter's presidency ended in January of 1981, just two months before Bill disappeared. So this situation seemed to be coming to a head. Jack Sullivan felt that one or more individuals had been milking the business while he was away. Jack Sullivan later fired the remaining members of the management team after Bill disappeared. Reading through the records, it appears that some people were suspicious of Steve Sullivan that maybe he knew more about what was going on with the company at that time that could have put Bill in danger. Bill's brother Jack gave us some information about Steve.
2: The company where Billy uh, left from and was working for a year or so. Him and Steve were pretty good buddies, I would say. And Steve and Billy would come out to my house on Long Island, we'd shoot darts and drink scotch and some beers and gamble a little bit. I mean, I had nothing against them. And I didn't didn't mind his personality, but I will will admit to you, he can can, uh, seem a little bit uh, strange at times. Billy, to my knowledge, liked Steve. Uh, May have felt sorry for Steve because he was the older brother, but I think the younger brother, Jimmy Sullivan, uh, was a little bit more favored uh, by the father. But Billy, he thought Steve was uh, rather upright. By that, I mean... Uh, you know, straightforward and uh, an honest guy. I think uh, he might have been reluctant to divulge everything that was taking place there because, as I was saying, he, the father was coming back from Washington and coming to take over the business or to get back in the business. And I think Steve and uh, I think it might have been G. McCormick, I don't know the name for sure, uh, who was the treasurer or something like that, and Billy. They gave himself uh, some type of uh, bonus and uh, uh, bought some shares of the company or something like that. And I think I think Steve was too happy that the uh, the parade was going to end and his father was coming home. The parade meaning that they were, you know, trying to work the business a little bit better. I don't think dad was real happy when he got there.
0: Bill's sister-in-law, Kathy, explained to us that many members of the Jamison family felt like Steve Sullivan should have known more than what he has said.
4: Well, they were close friends because they went
2: to school together, so they knew each other from the time they were very young. And my impression from everything that Billy ever said to me, he liked Steve very much. He had a lot of respect for him, thought he was a very bright guy. We thought he was close to Billy and he should have known more and didn't seem to know much. I think it caused some awkward instances in the very beginning because of the relationship and the feelings of certain people.
0: We also spoke to Steve Sullivan, and he told us about his relationship with Bill. My
5: younger brother is married to Katie. Billy and I uh, were in the same class in grade school from second grade through eighth grade. I'm thinking we went to different high schools. And he went to Temple, I went to Tulane, so we were pretty far apart in the college years. But then um, I was working at a family foundry. Billy came to work with us. I can't remember exactly when he started, but uh, he disappeared, I'm going to say, something like March of 1981. That would say that we probably worked together for uh, probably seven, eight, nine years. And it was a small business, so we were together from seven in the morning until eight o'clock at night, five nights or five days a week, sometimes six. I think he had a degree in accounting. He would mainly, uh, worked up front in the office and I, I worked in the factory, uh, for the most part. I mean, I had an office up there, but most of my time was spent on the shop floor. Most of his time was spent at his desk, even though he spent some time on the shop floor too. But we were together, uh, for many years, including ap- after work, we'd have, uh, Meetings at the local, local bar. I was married. He was single. My wife usually got home from work around 8.30 or 9 o'clock. So I would head home to meet her, and he would be off doing whatever he would do after that.
0: Steve mentioned something to us that we had heard from a lot of people. Steve would often get drinks with Bill after work, and he said that Bill enjoyed debating others.
5: I was literally with him all the time for like seven or eight years. I mean, my my wife used to catch the seven o'clock train and come back at nine o'clock at night, and work all day Saturday and uh, till noon on Sunday, and then we she would t- stop and we go play tennis, and that's uh, so I had a lot of time on my hands while she was working, and most of that time was spent with Billy. No debate that he shied away from ever, and for you know ninety percent of the time it was good natured, but he occasionally would get a little aggressive, verbally. I, I don't think he ever got angry, but he also, he would debate either side of any question. You know, he he liked that verbal conflict. He didn't lack any any confidence in his intelligence. He was very
0: intelligent. He was pretty funny, too. Steve told us what he remembers about Bill's disappearance.
5: He just didn't come to work one day. Then two days, then three days. You know, we started asking around. He, uh, I'm trying to think. There was a particular couple of bars that he went to that were frequented by uh, let's say the opposite of the country club crowd some pretty rough characters by reputation nobody had seen him the local cops hadn't seen him the you know the regular crowd at the bars that we would go to hadn't seen him so he hadn't been in any of those places a couple of the guys that worked for us had heard through some of the places that you know he might have been at one place or the other I can't even remember the name of them but not places that I would particularly go to. Literally nobody had a clue as to where he might be. I don't have any specific memory about it, but I'm certain they must have talked to me at least or stopped by the plant. One of our engineers had a younger brother that was uh, in local law enforcement, so he would come around the plant all the time. I don't know that he was particularly involved in looking for Billy, but we talked, you know, I certainly talked to him about, hey, you know, where could he possibly have gone? And I don't obviously think about Billy much anymore, but back in those days, it was just astounding that there was just not a clue. You know, just like, you know, now you see him, now you don't. I'm guessing he was in a bar late at night, got into an argument with the wrong guy. That's the only thing that makes any sense to me. I guess his car did disappear. I can't remember.
0: Steve had a thought about how someone could make a car disappear easily an experience he had himself.
5: I did, in one instance, sell a car for cash, and uh, the car buyer came into my kitchen, opened up his briefcase, took the 45 off the cash, and then peeled out $11,000 worth of cash, gave it to me, and took the car keys. And I said, where are you going to go with the car? He said, this car will be in Brazil by tomorrow. That was pretty interesting. That was uh, not exactly how I expected to sell my car. I, I think I recall him saying he was going to drive it straight to uh, Port of Newark. This guy said he, he bought like a car a day doing this. I mean, that was wild. The guy had a briefcase full of, full of cash, all hundreds. I'm like, how many hundreds can you fit in a briefcase?
0: Steve didn't seem to remember much more from the time period that Bill disappeared that could be relevant to the case. In the records, we found a report that was written by a private investigator who interviewed Steve in June of 1981, when his memory would have still been fresh. He said that he knew Bill since second grade. The P.I. asked Steve if he noticed any changes in Bill recently, and he said, I never really knew him well. He went on to say that he had only seen him at weddings and family affairs until he came to work alongside him in 1975. Steve said they would go out drinking every night after work, and sometimes Bill would get uneasy about the bar they were at and would say, let's get out of here. Bill often spoke of taking his accrued vacation time and going to California for 12 weeks. He had not taken a vacation in four years. Steve said he talked about going away every night. The report says a normal conversation would be, I'm thinking about quitting, of going to California or Florida or Maine. Do anything. Open a snow cone stand on the boardwalk. We can't tell you that anyone was milking the business while Jack Sullivan was away working for the Carter administration. We simply don't have any evidence to prove any wrongdoing. The business could have been losing money for other reasons, like mismanagement or various other factors. But it does seem like Bill was under an awful lot of pressure around the time he disappeared. When you love someone, you protect them in the best ways you can. That's why I recommend Simply Safe Home Security. It's an advanced system that protects every inch of your home and backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for fast emergency response for less than a dollar a day. I found their products so easy to install, and their app gives me peace of mind that I can see what's going on at my home wherever I'm at. Simply Safe is trusted by the experts. It was named Best Home Security Systems of 2024 by US News and World Report. Simply Safe offers everything you need for whole home protection HD cameras for indoors and outdoors, advanced motion sensors and entry sensors to protect doors, windows, and rooms, and a collection of hazard sensors to detect fire, flooding, and more. Plus, with a 60 day risk free trial, if you don't love your system, return it for a full refund. Simply Safe even covers return shipping. Order now to get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring. Don't wait. Visit slash MIA. That's slash MIA. There's no safe like Simply Safe. The team at Hungry Root just sent me a new box full of yummy stuff. My favorite was the rotisserie chicken green goddess salad, but our box was packed full of other delicious things too, like snacks and fresh produce. And my favorite part is that Hungry Root makes my weekday evenings go so much smoother. It's the easiest way to get fresh, high-quality groceries and simple, healthy recipes delivered to your door. All you have to do is take a fun, short quiz, and Hungry Root will get to know your personal health goals. Then they'll build a personalized cart with all of your grocery needs for the week and give you delicious recipe recommendations to put those groceries to good use. And my favorite part is that everything from Hungry Root follows a simple standard. It's got to taste good, be quick to make, and contain whole, trusted ingredients. Right now, Hungry Root is offering The Vanish listeners 40% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to HungryRoot.com slash Vanish to get 40% off your first delivery and get your free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com slash Don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you. This leads us to the third Jack in this story. In the police interview with coworker Chris Sielski, he mentioned another employee, Jack Laporte. He said that Laporte was friendly with Bill, and they often went to bars together after work. Katie told us that on the day that Bill failed to show up for work, it was Steve Sullivan who noticed right away, and he spoke to a coworker about it. That was Jack Laporte. But even today, there's some inconsistencies about this story.
4: Steve told us that he sent LaPorte over to Billy's apartment to see uh, if Billy was there. And Jack LaPorte said, absolutely not. He said, I drove past Billy's apartment and I would know whether I beat him to work, whether his car was in the parking lot or not. The day that Billy didn't show up for work, his car wasn't there. So I thought, oh, he beat me again. And then when he never showed up, I, he said, I was never sent back to that apartment to look for Billy. And Steve was the first one to go into his apartment.
0: Investigators tracked down Jack LaPorte and questioned him. The report from 1984 says the following. LaPorte described Jamison as a loner who became very irate at others quickly. He drank a great deal after his father had died. He would get into heavy arguments with people in bars just for the sake of arguing. He was a very intelligent person and could start a new life doing any job. He never appeared self-destructive. He had seen him on many occasions become very angry with employees over little things. He was a very rough person to work for. The day that Bill disappeared, Jack Laporte was sent out by his boss to look for Bill. He was given petty cash. This happened for several days. LaPorte remembers Bill mentioning his father a lot, and after his father died, he drank more and started smoking again. He used to frequent many bars in the area, but LaPorte didn't see him the night he was last seen. LaPorte had known Bill for three to four years prior to coming to work at Haug. In recent months, Katie began looking for Jack LaPorte to see if he had any information that could help find Bill. I've
4: been unlucky calling all the LaPortes, Jack LaPorte name in New Jersey, but I did talk to him on Sunday. I found him. There was no way for me to reach him through the phone book uh, that I could look up on the computer, so I paid for a background search, and we had a lengthy conversation. He described Billy very much when he started drinking. Billy liked to... it, It would appear to some people that he would aggressively want to argue but he was more or less a debater. And that's exactly how Jack described him. As somebody. And Jack would say to him, hey, this is not the place for us to be in a conversation with anybody. Everybody's drinking here, Billy. They want to have a good time. They want to forget their troubles. But he said Billy was respected, and the Chris Sealski guy that everybody in my family was suspicious of, including Richard Walters. Jack Laporte claims Billy and he claims that Chris Sielski was a strange guy, but he claims that Billy and Chris had respectful relationships with each other's jobs, as far as that goes, and claims not to have known Steve very well, because Steve was in the in the offices and in in charge of sales. And he told me that I could call him at any time, talk to him about anything. I asked him if he knew what happened to Billy, and he said no. And he said, at first, I found Billy to be depressed about your father's death and that I thought that he just took off, that, you know, he just needed a break from everything. But then when I realized that the car was missing with him, i it's just not a normal disappearance. That was that statement. He also, he didn't know of Billy's sexual life at all. Uh, The Shea Lounge was a place that was one of the last bars that we knew of in Linden that Billy went to, and Jack LaPorte had never been to that place with Billy, according to him on Sunday. But he also told me that he was brought to the sheriff's office three different times, and he was pressured into trying to tell them what happened to Billy. And he said, I had no knowledge of it. And he said, I felt like he was, they were being pressured by someone to get some information. But he said, I really don't have any information to give you.
0: We wanted to talk to Jack Laporte as well. And it took us a while to make the connection. But we finally got to speak with him shortly before the series went into production. Jack told us how he met Bill and what their relationship was like.
1: That's how I met him outside of work. That's the only thing I had in common with him. We would drink after work. I, I was an alcoholic. I drank every day, and we would drink after work. And I I drank in excess. He was single, you know. I would of course I would go home sometime, and he would keep drinking. And uh, you know I don't. You know we drank in different places. As a matter of fact, that's how I got the job there. I worked someplace else. I met him, and then I went to work for Hug Diecasting. He was a very argumentative person. When he drank, you know, he liked an argument, a debate. I should say, not necessarily an argument you know in other words he he would he was like a loner okay he talked about the war a lot you know i i was always under the impression after a few years knowing him that he had you know like an agent orange or something or whatever you want ptsd whatever it was but he he talked about the war a lot he he was a very opinionated person he he would meet somebody he would get in a conversation with somebody he would be the type of guy that if you said the sky was pink, he would say it was blue, even though if you looked outside, it was pink. He's a debater, I guess you would call it, on any subject. Not to the point of a knockdown, drag-out type thing, but he liked a good argument, put it that way. A couple of times I had to uh, come to shut up. In a way, he'd know if he'd gone too far. I would, I would, yeah, but I could see if he had won too many and, and say somebody like me wasn't around. You know, but he... he he looked like take care of himself. But I, I've ne- I never saw him get any, into anything like that, no. But then I didn't know where he went. You know, I, I, In other words, I went to three or four places. I might have went to three or four places with him. But he was more of, you know, he wore a suit and a tie, and I was like, you know, a maintenance type thing. With his family, we, you know, he always spoke of his family, his father and all that.
0: In the files we could see that witnesses reported that Jack Laporte had allegedly made comments to others that they thought were suspicious, like maybe he would get a promotion now that Bill was missing. Jack was very candid with us that he was struggling with alcoholism around this time, and he doesn't have clear memories of everything. But Jack did tell us what he could recall about Bill disappearing.
1: Originally, I thought he just disappeared. That's what I thought. Because I, I originally, when he when he went missing... I was from around here, and I was the only one from, like, around here. So I got involved with... They brought in the psychic, so I went in that Saturday and whatever while she sat in his desk and did her meditation or whatever you want to call it. And then I got another... uh, I knew a a guy who was a private detective. He used to be a police chief in Roselle. So I got him involved because he had gone into business, and they went local to the places that he... As a matter of fact, he even... Had talked to Bill once or twice because he met him in a local restaurant. You know, I did, did as much as I can to help.
0: Jack said that a few years after Bill disappeared, he was finally questioned by the police, and he felt like they were trying to put the blame on him.
1: You know, it was like five, six years later, I got dragged into the county sheriff's office. They brought this this profile thing in, and they started questioning me, and they, as much as accused me. And I'm like, you know, at the time I was still drinking, so I was like, you know, like, and here's the sheriff's office coming in and then I, it just occurred to me, you know, here's the eight o'clock at night I said, Well these guys coming off and they got this profile and they asked me what I thought and I said I thought he was still alive. I thought the guy I'd be honest with you, I thought he just got up one day and disappeared, Bill. I thought he just had it, whatever, the company with everything and just said to hell with it. I thought he had the wherewithal, I thought he had no family, no nothing. That's what I seriously believed back then. And they had this and that, and I said, oh, yeah, like, you're trying to tell me that I I killed this guy or something. And I'm like, I don't know where you're coming from, but what was my motive like? Because they said it was like money. I said, oh, geez, you can have all my financial statements going back. You know, I have none. (laughs) And then I come to find out that that, uh, I think the family put pressure on somebody. Or something, because nothing was moving. In, in other words, nobody was doing anything about it. I think somebody complained that Nothing was being done. Because at the same time, then when I started thinking about, it, all of a sudden, posters were going up in Roselle Park, because I live in Roselle Park, and these these information posters were going up. Has anybody seen this guy? And I said, well, somebody must be pressuring somebody, and they have to do something. So they're bringing somebody people in, 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 in and you know, questioning them. But I, I really, I really don't know. I knew the guy. I liked the guy. He gave me a job. I, I, you know, I, I really did. He was a good friend of mine. You know, and they they brought me down to the county and they threw this, what you call it, at me. This this book, you know, this whatever they did on him. They had him alive in Florida working in a Seven Eleven. That's what they told me. The county told me after they did this whatever of him, this computer computer profile. If you think he's dead, what are you telling me that you think of the profile says he's working in a Seven Eleven? They put one guy in front of me in the desk, and the other guy sat in a chair. As soon as he sat down, he threw his jacket open to show me his gun, and I just started laughing, and they they must have known then it was over with. I said, would—would this guy watch too much TV. I mean, you can't go through with this. I think somebody told them that they have to do something, and I was brought in. Maybe two or three other people were brought in so they could put on paper that I was interrogated. They were moving on this particular missing person. Nobody's ever said anything since then. Huh?
0: Jack Laporte gave us his take on what he thinks happened to Bill.
1: He would drink beer and a lot of beer, but he'd always get in his car and he'd drive home with no problem at all. You know, I never had to drive him home. He never got a ticket, to my knowledge, or anything like that. He, I never saw him as far as a staggering, fall down drunk. I guess it has to look like foul play. I, I mean, well, there's a lot of bodies of water, but I, I, I don't know. He you already know, drive into drive into about a bottle. Around here, no, there's not like lakes around here. That's even pretty, pretty hard to do. Yeah, I, I don't know what to make of it. It's like everything around here is is like my house. The only same thing separating me from my house and the next two houses is a the driveway. There's no open space. Yeah, you know? so it's pretty hard to hide any car <laughs> or junkyards. Any big city, any big city where there's a high rate of stolen cars, you can get rid of a car in no time. I mean, somebody around here is going to cut it up or get rid of it or crush it or something for you for the right price. His mother, I think, was still alive because his father just passed away. I don't know if he would have done that. I mean, too close to his family. I don't understand any enemies that he really had. This is New Jersey, so the mob's all over the place. (laughs) Ask anybody. (laughs) Nobody should be forgotten. And he wasn't a bad guy, so he definitely shouldn't be forgotten. He he wasn't a cruel or bad person by any means.
0: One person who must have known a great deal about Bill's day-to-day work and who he was speaking to would have been his secretary. Bill's secretary, Wendy, was interviewed by a private investigator in 1981, and there are a few interesting things to note in her interview. She said that a couple of weeks before Bill disappeared, a man named Lance called and stated that he was a friend of Bill's. Bill was out to lunch when Lance called, so they didn't speak at the time. The next day, Lance appeared at the door. The report goes on to say he was described as nasty looking. He wore a leather jacket with his shirt open to his waist and had a great deal of flashy, real-looking jewelry. Wendy said that Bill was not happy about this visit, and when the man left, Bill seemed annoyed and disappointed. When Steve Sullivan was asked about Lance, he said he's no friend of Billy's. The private investigator said he then brushed off any reference to Lance. In another interview with Steve Sullivan, he told the PI that Lance was someone who worked in the same industry as them, but that he had worked in Long Island and later another place in Newark. We don't know much about this Lance person, but at the beginning of this episode, you heard a clip of Bill's brother, Jack, talking about how Bill spoke to him the night before he disappeared and expressed frustration about an upcoming visit with someone. Jack Jamison believes that person was Lance.
2: Lance is the guy, I believe, who was showing up to meet Billy either the next day or later that day that Billy kind of had some angst about.
0: One last thing about Lance that we noticed in the file was that a neighbor reported that an unidentified male was banging on Bill's door one night for 45 minutes. The neighbor knew that Bill was inside, but he never answered the door. Bill's secretary believed the timing of that lined up with when Lance was looking for Bill. When the neighbor was questioned again, she said her husband didn't want them involved, that it was nighttime when this occurred and she didn't see the man. We can't say for sure that this man knocking at Bill's door was Lance, but it does make you wonder who was knocking at Bill's door for 45 minutes right before he went missing. Bill's brother Jim knows that his brother was under an immense amount of pressure around this time, their father had just died in January, and now all of these troubles at work. Jim wonders about how this may have all contributed to his disappearance. I know
6: Billy was, I think, probably depressed, and I'm sure he was depressed, you know, it is, in his life, you know, up there in North Jersey. There was some stuff going on in the company, and there was something fishy there. He was in a funk because of the pressure of the business that he was in. Because Jack Sullivan, my brother-in-law's father, was a driven man. You know, Naval Academy and all that jazz. And uh, ran Jimmy Carter's Pennsylvania campaign uh, with the reward of, we're going to get you some kind of position. So then he has to leave his business, his his nice little cute business that he's got going up there, making these uh, tools. You know, it's 100 employees, and they're non-union. So here comes this angle. They did try to unionize. So he's under pressure.
0: As I'm sure you can imagine, due to the fact that Bill worked for a company that was owned by a family that was related to the Jamisons through marriage, with Katie being married to James Sullivan, this was a touchy subject at times. Jack Jamison told us that his family never wanted to accuse anyone of anything, But the subject was unavoidable because there was so much going on with Bill's work.
2: Jimmy Sullivan was very forthright about Steve, about his dad, about Billy's role. Uh, They they treated Billy's, they gave my mom money as part of a salary or a bonus that Billy would have earned, you know, made some financial uh, gesture. But that was through Jimmy's and Katie, Katie's, you know, married into that family. So uh, I thought Jimmy was good, but Steve being uh, a part of the family and, uh, yeah, there was a sensitivity, but not, not of Jimmy. I, I don't think any one of my brothers or sisters uh, felt that Jimmy or had held any or hid anything uh, about his family. I think he was very forthright
0: with the various potentially shady things going on with Bill's work. His family has even wondered if he could be in witness protection. But one of Bill's siblings did the best they could to check into that.
2: A marshal, a U.S. marshal, and I don't know the circumstances. I don't know which brother or sister it was that had the contact, that called upon this individual, and he did some research assuring us could. Find out if Billy was in that program well he kind of came back and told whoever it was in my family that his information leads him to believe Billy is not in the program
0: There seems to be many possibilities related to Bill's work that could have left someone with a motive to make him disappear. From the people who worked under Bill and described him as a difficult person to work for and seemed disgruntled all the way up to the mob. But we're still left with nothing concrete. Part of the problem is that many of the people you heard about in this story were never interviewed by law enforcement at all. And the ones that were, most weren't spoken to until years later, when their memories had already faded. Many of the interviews that we do have to go off of were conducted by private investigators hired by the family. It seems like much of the investigating has been left up to the family to do on their own. Or it wouldn't have happened at all. Next week, we're going to close out this series by going over all of the different theories and also discuss some other important aspects of this case, like Bill's mental health, and go over the report that forensic psychologist Richard Walter prepared about this case. You won't want to miss it. If you have any information about the disappearance of Bill Jamison, please contact the Roselle Park Police Department at 908-245-2300 or the New Jersey State Police Missing Persons Unit at 609-882-2000.
3: At first, when Bill disappeared, you know, I gave zero credence to the thought that he might have done it voluntarily. I don't think he would have ever done that. I assumed he came he came into foul play. And being, being that he was at a bar, you know, in the early morning hours in a neighborhood that You wouldn't want to have your children there. Uh, I assume that he just ran into the wrong couple of guys on the wrong night. But then when they can disappear the car, that's a whole new level. You kind of left to speculate that it was more than just a bar brawl, right? I immediately thought that he had run into foul play. I don't know why, but some of the the police tried to pretend that he just took off and to me in my mind there was no chance of that he he would never do you know this is a very close family he had no reason to do that he would never do that to his mother or his family members i I just discounted that immediately so i thought he from the very very beginning that he had run into foul play but having gone that far we never had any we had never had any clue as to where to look
0: That brings us to the end of episode 345. I'd like to thank everyone who spoke with us for this series. If you have a missing loved one that you'd like to have featured on the show, there's a case submission form at TheVanishedPodcast.com. If you'd like to join in on the discussion, there's a page and discussion group on Facebook. I'm on Twitter at TheVanishedPod and also on Instagram. If you enjoy this show, subscribe now and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now you want to help support the show, there are a couple things that you can do. One way to help The Vanished is by supporting our sponsors. You can find links and promo codes in the episode notes. Another way to support the show is by contributing on Patreon, where you can get early and ad-free episodes. Be sure to tune in next week for part three of Bill Jamison's story. Thanks for listening.